When I was a kid, I thought, life insurance is so stupid. Everybody dies, you can't stop yourself from dying. But that's not what it's about. It's about the ancillary fallout of unexpected, untimely death. Welcome, I am Camilla Jeffs, a 20-year student of money. I'm an introvert who started out broke and full of fear. Fast forward to today, where I've conquered the secrets of getting my financial house in order, become a professional investor, and built a business that supports my family. And I'm going to show you exactly how I did it. We're going to talk about getting in the game as a real investor, building a business to support you and passing on wealth strategies to the next generation. Think of this as your one-stop shop for all things money. This is the Quiet Wealth Podcast. I want to give a quick shout out to my podcast manager, Abby. If you're in need of help in launching and managing your own show, please reach out to her at productions at abbyguaki.com. I'll put her details in the show notes. She really is the best and I love her. Hello and welcome back to the Quiet Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Camilla, and I am so excited that you are here because we have an amazing guest. Today, we have Jennifer Burnham Grubbs, who is an expert in the insurance industry. So we're going to be talking about all sorts of things, risk management. But first, if you are new here, welcome. I'm excited that you've joined us here at Quiet Wealth. We talk about three things. We talk about building businesses, building wealth, and leaving a legacy. So we're going to dive into all three of those things with our guest and make sure you stick around to the end because she's going to tell us how she's leaving a legacy or living a legacy for us. So. First, Jennifer, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Camilla. I'm delighted, number one, that a woman like you has created this podcast and that you're our forerunner for all the strides we need to make as women and that we can nerd out specifically about legacy and risk management. Oh, thank you so much. You know, the podcast is so fun for me. I was nervous to start it, but I'm on episode 100 something. I can't remember what it's going to be for you, but we just passed 100 episodes and episode 100 was all about how to think about wealth in a different way. So it was this concept of how could I be in a position to be able to give $1 million in my lifetime while I'm still alive? And you know what does that look like? And what kind of wealth do I need to build in order to do that? So it was really fun, really fun to talk about this. And I nerd out on all this stuff too. Well, I have opinions about that because I know from firsthand experience and in my daily work, how much the foundational risk piece is what prepares you to be able to give because you know that you're protected and abundant in a way that makes it possible to do those kinds of sort of advanced hierarchy of needs things that we're all aiming to get to just from survival into thrival and then into legacy especially for moms, the way we try to give and give and give, we're all hoping that we can put it all towards some really greater good. Yes, I agree. I agree. So, all right, give us a little bit of background about you, what you run, what you do, and how you got there. Sure. So I landed in insurance, honestly, a little bit accidentally. I graduated from Princeton, summa cum laude, thought maybe I will get some kind of an MBA or whatever, and started at a boutique in Beverly Hills at a firm where there were about four or five guys who had been doing things for 30 years. And they were insurance guys. They were very sweet. They'd been around forever and ever. And I came in just like as an assistant working at $17 an hour. And luckily, you know, I was always very good at math in college and I liked people a lot. And with insurance, it's a lot of it is math. At the end of the day, it's really just numbers. The, the beauty of insurance is there's a lot of data 
And it's not so much guesswork on the carrier's part, at least, right? They've got really good actuarial data. And as a consumer, the trick is learning how to tailor what you're buying around your own needs. I could use a combination of my math and people skills to start doing just that with the insurance strategies at this firm. So I was sort of just looking at different policies and figuring out what people didn't need to buy so that they could save money. I mean, I value money. My my mom was a single mom and an immigrant. So, you know, even though I went to Princeton, I didn't like take money for granted. I thought every dollar counts. So I was solving for best value, which I call lowest price for best possible protection. I tripled my boss's business in three years. And they were like, wow, Jennifer, you're really good at this. Like, you should get your license. And so I did. And I kept doing it my way. And little by little, I learned that I was doing it in a way that other people in my industry weren't. It took a little time. I was a little naive, but I started finally understanding that all the other people were doing it as far as this upsell practice. And at times, in fact, they would recommend something that wasn't even really best for the client, but had the higher price tag and therefore the higher commission. And when I discovered that, I was really shocked and upset, frankly. I was like, what? We give these dad and uncle figures, they're like father figures, all this power, but they don't have our best interests at heart. That's not cool. And so I decided I was going to launch my own firm. And that became Quantum Insurance Services, which I launched in 2012. And we are a commissions agnostic insurance consulting firm based out of Los Angeles. We work with every single carrier that has an A rating or higher. We don't look and like consider what is the back end commission on any product that we're referring, you know, or recommending. We look at all the carriers, all the products, look for who has the very best value propositions. And then we tailor around each client's specific needs. And so we really see ourselves as consultants. And we work with, thankfully, some of the top business managers and attorneys and accountants all across the country. We actually have very high profile celebrity clients and most people would like kill to, to be able to advise because we become the advisor's advisor when it comes to risk management. I love that you launched your own business. And before we even started to hit recording, I want you to tell me the stat again. You were telling me how many independent insurance brokers are female. Oh my gosh. Well, I only know this because last year I got invited to a leadership conference in London and I was really excited. I was like, oh my gosh, I got invited to the conference. And they took the top 175 independent producers in, in the US. And I got there and then I did a count and only four were women. So 2% in my industry is female. I'm very glad to be in the 2% and pushing the needle for what I see as qualitatively better guidance because what I think we bring as women and the way we look at things has a little less ego sometimes or self-interest in it at times. Just generally, women tend to work from a very service perspective, which is part of the reason they don't always rise to the top. And I just love being able to bring that perspective into the work I do because I do think risk management is super important. Congratulations to you for getting invited to London. That's so exciting and way to represent, you know, in my industry, there are very few women as well. I love to meet other trailblazers and get to talk to you to doing this. So let's dive into risk management. So we talk about wealth in a lot of different ways. So of course, building wealth is important, but I think just as important is protecting wealth and not losing what you've built. I think of this concept of the castle. You know, I've worked so hard to build my own castle and now it's time to put the moat around it. So talk to me about your view on risk management and what you think are the best things that we can do to protect our wealth. 100%. I call it protecting the nest, which first and foremost, we do as the foundation of risk management. When we are just ourselves and we don't have any dependents, 
We don't really need life insurance per se. Maybe we have a bunch of student debt and we don't want to saddle our parents or brothers or sisters or whatever. But like other than that, really, there'd be no real need for term life insurance when we don't have dependents. It's a whole other story if you're looking at leveraging your good health when you're really young for part of a non-correlated retirement strategy, which we can get to. But let's just talk about the basics of risk management. The moment we have dependents, if we have kids, they are vulnerable for at least the next 20 years of their lives. And they depend on someone providing for them. And that means income replacement and caretaking, which all costs money. So really, we all suddenly become adults and we need life insurance if we have babies. And that is often best done with term life insurance, which is the cheapest kind of insurance. If you have kids and don't have life insurance, honestly, what you're leaving yourself open to are the tragic stories that happen. And it's so silly because when we're younger and healthier, we're so cheap to insure. I'll never forget the first policy I ever got was for my husband when he was 31. And we got a million dollars of 15-year term insurance, and it was $232 a year. And that's like crazy, right? Because when you're young and healthy, they know the chances of you dying are very slim. And so you can bank on your very good health. But the difference between being insured and not is game-changing. When I was a kid, I thought life insurance is so stupid. Everybody dies. You can't stop yourself from dying. But that's not what it's about. It's about the ancillary fallout of unexpected, untimely death. Because what happens is if there's no insurance, you've lost a parent or two, suddenly you're displaced, suddenly there's also no money to raise you, suddenly all the opportunities come off the table, everything goes back into survival mode, as opposed to what we talked about is thrival mode and legacy mode. When there's insurance, it doesn't stop the person from dying, nothing can replace that person. But it stops, for example, that suddenly the co-parent's gone. And now this is a true story. I had a client who got her life insurance and then she told me after she was insured, she said, I feel so much better because when I was nine, my mom died and my poor dad then had to work around the clock to try to work and make up for what she was bringing in. There was no time for a healing. There was no time for anything. Everybody was just raw and numb and had to move into mm. survival mode. And it was so sad. And she said, if we had life insurance, there would have been the space to take maybe like a six month hiatus and a healing trip to Italy or something at all. And and I just thought, that's so sad, that terrible story. I hate when I hear the real life stories, but it's risk management is the small ounce of prevention that's the pound of cure and prevents ancillary fallout from one bad thing leading to a lot of other bad things. So I'm sorry for the long-winded answer, but I think that's the foundation of risk management is yeah. what can you do ahead of time when things are good? It's like before the barn is on fire, what do you do to make sure you're safe against those catastrophic scenarios that wipe out mm -hmm. all the gains that you've been trying to make? Yeah. And I think that's kind of basics, right? So level one, you got to, as soon as you have dependents, I agree, you need life insurance and you can just start with simple term insurance. And so my husband and I did when we you know, we started having children and it was cheap because we were in our 20s and we were having kids and that life insurance is very cheap. Now we're in our mid 40s. We're at a different stage in life where our children are starting to leave the nest. So what would you suggest for people in their 40s and 50s whose kids are now leaving the nest? Like, what do we need? Such a good question. It's so fascinating. When we first have our kids, our immediate focus is on them and protecting the nest. The minute they start leaving the nest, we realize, Ugh. Oh my gosh, I've got to focus on me. And the lens focuses instantly on your future planning being 50, being 60, being 70, being 80. And then you realize you have to do a bunch for yourself all of a sudden. And that's where yep. you can use life insurance and risk management for protecting yourself for the needs against long-term care, which is a huge one. 
once you're 40 and 50, it's really time to start looking at that because when you get to be 60, the products are either too expensive or you can't get them because you're not healthy enough to get them. So 40 and 50 is where to start having conversations of how are you going to pay for that time of life where you've slowed down, you're not really able to take care of yourself, you don't want to be a burden on the family, or you may not even have family that you can count on. Because the average long-term care claim per person in this country will be $1.3 million per person in 30 years. There's a huge supply-demand issue going on because the baby boomers Mm -hmm. just started to age up into the long-term care. And as it is now, if you want to be comfortable in your own home and you need round-the-clock care, it's $10,000 a month. And Mm -hmm. women tend to live even longer than men. So you need to really think about, wow, you spend all this time retirement planning and and trying to grow money, but a wipeout of savings towards long-term care, which is the least fun way to use your retirement savings, can be easily prevented if you get proper long-term care protection instead. The good news is these days, there have been some great developments in insurance where you used to have to just get a separate long-term care policy. Instead, these days, if you're young and healthy, you can get hybrid policies where you pay into this bucket And part of it is permanent death benefit, which you can't outlive. And people like that for various reasons. It's nice to leave a little bit behind. Or, you know, the ability to access the death benefit while you're still alive, if you can't do two out of six activities of daily living, which is typically the qualifier for long-term and also the qualifier for many kinds of disabilities. So you don't have to wait until you're old. And then you can use that death benefit pool for either all of your long-term care or a mix and match of both, where maybe you need long-term care and then you pass away and there was still some of that pool left, that still pays out as tax-free death benefit. So the hybrid solutions that have come on the market lately are excellent, especially because they can also be built to have a portion inside the policy that grows retirement income tax-free. So they can be really versatile tools when used correctly, as long as you're healthy and young and have the ability to get good advice on these products because it's all execution. Mm -hmm. I had a really interesting conversation with a woman the other day who is in her late 50s. And she was telling me that I don't really have anything for retirement because right now I'm helping my son with all of his kids. And so like all of her money is being funneled to that. And she just was panicking to me a little bit about what am I going to do? Because I don't really have this, you know, nest egg. And so now I'm worried that right now I'm taking care of my son, but he's going to have to take care of me when I'm older because I won't have enough money. And I think this is something we think about, right? (laughs) As women, we're like, uh, we know we're going to live a lot longer and science and healthcare evolves. And we're living longer and longer. And, you know, I mean, it's not unheard of. It won't be unheard of, I don't think, for us to live into our hundreds. You retire at 60, you still got 40 years, 40. That's a lot of years to think about making sure you have the income to take care of yourself. And it's really interesting. You're right. Like the the boomers are just starting to age and just starting to get into that need of the long-term care. And then my generation, Gen X, we're going to be next, right? So we're at the cusp of retirement and starting to think about all of these things. So there's a lot to do in terms of preparing for long-term care. So I want to actually ask you a couple of questions too about investing, right? So I encourage alternative investing here on my podcast. And you know, and typically that means investing in real estate or in gold or in other things outside of the stock market, essentially. 
And so what I wanted to talk to you about is insurance as an investment. So not only does insurance give you a death benefit, could give you long-term care, but let's really dive into the investing portion of it. So talk to me about that. Yeah, this is really interesting. You go online now and you see a lot about being your own bank. The Mm -hmm. beauty of life insurance products is they can be used as an alternate tax diversification strategy and a hedge against the stock market. So the stock market goes up, it goes down, it has no guarantees whatsoever. And even if you've got this like 80-20 portfolio, some of it's bonds, some of it's stock, you're not really hedging against market risk because it will still go up, it will still go down. We hear every single day about the fluctuations of the stock market. Mm -hmm. Non-correlated assets in general are just any kind of financial tool that doesn't necessarily go up or down the way the stock market does. It's not tied to the ups and downs of the stock market. Well, insurance and annuities are the ultimate non-correlated asset because they build in the right products. There are variable insurance products and variable annuities. I don't recommend them to anybody ever. I lived through 2005, 6, 7, and 8, seeing insurance products that were variable, doing very poorly and vowed never to use them. And I I believe anyone who's really intelligent will be looking at risk management tools with index protection because what indexed annuities and indexed life insurance products can do is they guarantee a minimum return, no matter what, no matter what's going on with interest rates, no matter what's going on with the stock market, a bare minimum guaranteed interest rate. And then they have upside potential based on a spectrum. Usually it can be depending on indexes or the kind of product. It doesn't matter. There's a lot of different ways you find additional upside schedules, right? With annuities, it's the longer you go before you annuitize, then you get a better and better interest return. With life insurance products, there is a really cool way you can get indexed life insurance product where if the stock market does do well, you capture all the upside up to a certain cap, and then they cap it in exchange for eating losses whenever the stock market is down. And so you can't lose your money. They simply credit (laughs) you positive gains and insulate you against negative gains. So you're always just slow and steady wins the race going up or locking in exactly what you have until you could go up again, which I love. It's kind of like that yodeler on the price is right, because you and I are both Gen X. Do you remember? I love that because Risk management is meant to be secure. I think there's something to be said for having a portion of your money in something that is locked in, guaranteed, and going up, but maybe not 12% every single year, maybe 6% every year, right, on average. Mm -hmm. Slow and steady wins the race is really the name of the game with at least some portion of everyone's portfolio, in my opinion. Because when you get into retirement, If everything is in the stock market or in a fluctuating asset, but you need liquid and your assets are down, maybe the price of gold is down, maybe Bitcoin's down, maybe your 401k is down, maybe your real estate is down, your indexed insurance products will still be up. So you can access Mm -hmm. those without having to eat losses versus if you have to then pull out of your 401k or liquidate your Bitcoin or whatever, and it's down, you're making those real finite losses because you couldn't ride out the curve. So risk management helps you create sort of a hedge against fluctuations because of those absolute guarantees. The other beautiful thing about life insurance is cash inside a life insurance policy. If it's designed correctly, grows tax-free, you don't pay capital gains. And then when you draw it out, you draw it out as retirement income tax-free and or loans. And you take the loans out against your own self and you choose whether or not to pay them back. So it's very difficult to find assets where you don't pay capital gains 
and you get retirement income tax-free, but life insurance does that. And I think it's the best thing that one can do if one's insurable and healthy and doesn't wait too long to try to incorporate these kinds of strategies. Because really to do life insurance as part of your retirement planning, you really should try to do it before you're about 55, unless you're okay. super healthy. And you think you're going to live to be 90, and then you can still get a policy by the time you're 55, maybe up to around age 58, that would make sense. Once you're past that age, then you should look at annuities because annuities also are great, but they don't depend on you being healthy and young. You can get them anytime. You can A 90-year-old can get an annuity and sometimes does. So annuities are for once you've aged out of the opportunities that exist in, in cash value life insurance. Could you explain to me more about annuities? Because in my brain, annuities was always something for old people. You know, it's not for yeah. the for the young. And so now I'm like, oh, I mean, am I getting to be the old people that needs an annuity now? <laughs> Maybe I am. But so could you explain no. what annuities are and, and when they're useful? Yeah. So annuities are contracts with insurance companies. And they, again, have a lot of guarantees in them. They have a lot of guaranteed promises that they will come through on. I use layman's terms, by the way. I could use fancy speak to explain all of this, but I feel like people don't appreciate that because we hear online what an annuity is. It makes no sense to us. I'm going to explain to you in a way that will make sense to you. Okay. It's a contract with an insurance company and they have a promise of a sort of scheduled ROI that will come to you as long as you give them some money up front. It's all about the promises. The reason old people use them is once you're older, you cannot afford risks on the stock market the same way. If you've ever mm -hmm. gone 401k, they say, what's your risk tolerance? What's your time horizon? Everyone has the same spiel because they're going to have a robo-advisor, which is actually a computer program, allocate a certain percentage towards stocks and bonds based on what they think is your risk tolerance. Once you're older, you don't have any risk tolerance. You cannot afford to lose 20% of your life savings. Once you're 70, like you just can't, you can't ride that out, right? You need it all to be building upward and not losing. So annuities are basically planned schedules for positive gains that are guaranteed or have a promise component that are, are much less risky than say the stock market. And they don't grow tax-free. There is some, some taxation on annuity income. They're great, but cash value life insurance is better because of the tax-free income component if you can get it, if you do it young enough. But that's not to say annuities are bad because every other financial tool has taxation, right? Mm -hmm. Life insurance is the only one that has these crazy kind of like a get out of jail free card where some magic loopholes exist that allow you to, to not have to pay capital gains and tax the way you do on every other financial tool out there. Annuities are just like every other financial tool where yes, there is a, a little bit of taxation, but you do get guarantees that you can't get say on the stock mm -hmm. market or your IRA, or even in real estate, or even in Bitcoin, which is why they're very popular with older people. Sometimes they also have a bit of a death benefit, but that's usually not the primary focus. It's more this like scheduled promise of ROI and the stability that you can put this and get guaranteed growth on a product. Okay. What's an average annual return on an annuity? Well, you know, all through the decades, they fluctuate. But right now, because interest rates are quite high, they're offering products that have 6 7%. We're even mm -hmm. seeing edging up towards 7 and 8%. You can get indexed annuities. And there is also upside potential for better than 6.1%. You can get guaranteed annuities or indexed annuities. Both of them are my favorite kind. I would stay away from variable annuities. They sound great on paper, but to me, life insurance and annuities, you buy them for the promises, the guarantees. Why would you take risk on beyond mm -hmm. 
a reasonable threshold in the risk management portion of your portfolio. I like to take care of the downside with risk management and then seek the speculative upside elsewhere. Seek the speculative upside once you've got your bases and your sure things covered. Then go buy gold, go buy Bitcoin, go do some venture. Those are extremely high risk. Venture is the highest risk because they have literally no promises at all. In my opinion, no one has any business doing any venture until they've got their risk management in place. If you don't have long-term care, some kind of cash value life insurance or an annuity plan, or at very least your term insurance in place, you should not go risking anything because you've left a giant hole in your portfolio. Yeah. Well, and that's super good advice too, because I know we get excited about investing and we get excited about, oh, we're going to make these big returns, you know, but I am more interested in the protections than I am in the like giant returns, you know, and I'm also more interested in impact too. Can my investments be more impactful in the way that I do it rather than just simply returning me a bunch of dollars? not really after that. I'm after something a little bit more robust than that. Like something that's going to impact the communities and impact the earth and impact people's lives and, and help give back in some way. Yeah. So, I mean, the concept of be your own bank is really interesting. Can you help explain a little bit more? You mentioned that you could take a loan. You put the money into the insurance and you buy insurance and the cash value, if I understand right, is the amount of money that you have put into this insurance product. Yes. It grows. You you said and it it's gross. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. But yes, so so just to give you some framework, if you're in your early 40s and you are healthy and a non-smoker, you can start a nice life insurance product with somewhere around five to seven thousand dollars a year. And you just okay. put it in and it will grow over time and it'll literally grow over time to be millions of dollars in cash value for yourself. Or you can do lump sums or a short schedule plan where you're like, look, I'm sitting on 150K in savings account. And back two years ago, it was earning zero, right? You're like, I'm going (laughs) to leverage this instead. You could do a lump sum where you take, say, 100 or 150K or 75K or 50K, move it into a life insurance or an annuity design. And then you're setting it in motion on its cash value path or on in the annuitization path with the life insurance that cash value bucket starts to grow. And the longer you let it grow, it's like a snowball. It just gets Mm -hmm. bigger and bigger. And then you can start taking cash out of your policy. And the beauty is as you take, I I sometimes say it's like a bloodletting. You know how you give blood. I know it sounds gruesome, but you give blood and your cells regenerate, actually. It's amazing. We're able to give blood because our cells will replenish. Similarly, with cash value in a life insurance policy, if it's properly designed, if the death benefit isn't too high, and if your health is good, the interest alone that gets credited on the cash value snowball you've built inside will replenish what you took out as tax-free retirement income. So Hmm. you don't really have to get down to the principal or to the bone of the policy. And also, if you're taking it out as a loan, They have very favorable loan rates. So you can either get net zero loans or I have a cash value policy and I took out a loan of 10K so I could invest in a venture opportunity. And my Mm -hmm. interest to myself was 2.75% right now. Where right now you can't get a loan at anything under 8% anywhere. You know, so, so the cash value interest 
gets credited over time and is where that tax-free accumulation can happen. And that's where the beauty is in a woman's mm-hmm. value life insurance policy. So this $10,000 loan you took out, for example, you said you're you're doing a 2.7% interest rate. So does that mean you're making payments back to the policy on this? And then you're going to put back $12,750 rather than $10,000? Great question. With the loans, you have the option of whether you want to pay it back or not. And you do it based on your strategy. For me, I started this cash value life insurance policy about five years ago. And frankly, I did it for the cash value growth and the long-term care, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a hybrid. So the death benefit can double up as my long-term care should I need long-term care, which I expect and hope I will. I already have term insurance for millions of dollars separate from this cash value life insurance policy, right? So I'm using this hybrid cash value policy for the cash value advantages and the long-term care advantages. Because of that, I don't want to deplete my cash value by not paying my loan back yet. It's young. Mm. I'm hoping this is going to keep growing for me for 40 years. So I don't want to create a hole in it. I do intend to grow that cash. So I am paying back my 10K loan on purpose. I'm putting in 600 a month to repay it. I chose the terms of my repayment because that way it will fill back that hole very quickly and all that interest continues growing my snowball. I get older and I want to take out the cash, I'll take it as withdrawals above my basis. And then eventually I can take out additionally in the form of loans that I have no intention of repaying because the cash value will have grown so much that I don't want it to accumulate too much longer because I can't take it with me. And those will be loans I purposely leave unpaid, which I have the right to do. And I am my own banker and that's okay. I'm allowed because I'm the lender. So there's strategy involved. The beauty is you can even use cash value life insurance for things like college savings because Mm -hmm. they don't count against applications for financial aid, whereas a 529 college savings plan actually does. Sadly, every dollar you put in a 529 plan actually counts against your eligibility for scholarship, something that's very important to me because I was a full scholarship student to go to Princeton and there's no way my mom could have paid for that. It makes me really sad to think that we put this money into 529 plans and then boom, we're discrediting anything we might be able to receive otherwise versus doing a cash value life insurance policy where you can put the same amount of money and it's not on the books at all for the FIFA, for the application. For, mm-hmm. and it's legal. It's not a, like a, it's not a lie. It's just that they don't count life insurance against those scholarship applications. Yeah. Yet another reason why I don't like 529s. Oh, I'm glad we see eye to eye on this. I've never been a fan of 529s and and I didn't even have that reason, right? To not, to not like it. Yeah, um, I, just, I just don't like the restrictive nature of it and, and that, that you can only use for one thing and I didn't want to pigeonhole my kids into having to go to college because not all my children are choosing to go to higher institution. They're choosing careers or businesses or other types of training and I want to support that. I don't want them pigeonholed into anything or the government controlling how I invest. <laughs> I, I still agree with you. And actually, sadly, I think that, you know, if I may, I'm going to step on a soapbox for a minute. Go for it. There is a whole kind of industrial complex that tries to drive everybody into assets under management. It's really the 401k, the IRA, and your 529. And they just tell you and pitch you and pitch you and pitch you that this is what you've got to do versus all these other incredibly valuable tools that are, if used correctly, 10x the ROI and 10x the diversity. Mm -hmm. 
And what people don't understand is the only reason that is the way things are is that AUMs, and by, I mean assets under management, and by that I mean your 401k, your IRA, your Roth IRA, and your 529 are literally the easiest way to make money on the planet. I posture as an expert. I put on my suit. I tell you I'm with Morgan Stanley. I tell you to give me all your money. I put it into your 529, your IRA, and your, your 401k, and I collect 2% passive interest for the rest of my life, whether I produce or I don't, whether it's up or it's down, that's the easiest way to make money on the planet. I'm telling you right now, insurance is a hundred times harder. There's so much work. That's why so many people stay away from it. They say it's confusing, too complicated, whatever. It's also very hard. You have to work really hard to help guide people into these. Same with real Mm. estate. Real estate is actually pretty difficult. I have a lot of these other ones. So the only reason everyone gets directed kind of like sheep herding into these is because the players make the easiest ROI for themselves if that's what they tell you to do. Agreed. (laughs) And then also, it's so plain, Jane, you don't really understand. You're not in control of your own money. And and that's what I think people need to be more is just in control of what they are working on, right? You've got to understand it. You've got to get in the game. Don't let someone else manage it all for you because they're not going to make the same decisions that, that you are. You know, and my other soapbox about 529s is that it's the whole consumer driven price point. So if the consumer has to actually pay for the product, they will demand a lower price. But in higher education, is the consumer actually paying for the product that the kid who's going to college, are they paying for it? Nine times out of 10, no. Mom and dad have the 529 or scholarships or student loans, you know, or even worse, right? And so that's why the price of higher ed just goes up and up and up. It's baffling. It is baffling to me that people just pay it and the kids don't even realize how much it actually costs. And I tell the story of when my kids first started having their own clothing budget, they made very different choices about where they wanted to shop for a shirt (laughs) than before when they didn't look at the price tag. You know what? I knew, met a man who said that, and I'm totally going to do this, for college, they transferred the entire amount due for tuition, room, board, and whatever into the kid's bank account and made them pay the tuition bill. Mm. And it was a yep. whole different story when they realized how much money is being spent and that uh-huh. they're the ones paying the bill because then all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, this is what they're investing in me. I'm so going to do that. I thought it was really smart. It makes a difference, right? They have to write the check and they have to, you know, they have to transfer the money and pay the tuition. You know, that's my oldest is doing right now. And she has a separate account just for her tuition that she keeps in a high yield savings, you know, and then she transfers it over and it's painful. And and she's just, she graduated in December. So of course that account has gone down to zero. And she's like, I'm so broke. I'm like, good job, dear. You did it. (laughs) You made it through. Yeah, but she's graduating debt free and she bankrolled almost all of that herself. Like we helped a little bit in the beginning, but done a really good job. And I just realized we're totally off topic. <laughs> Sorry. It's all right. It's all right. You know, I think we were just talking about investments, right? And investing in your children is a is a good investment too and getting there. So I have a question, and maybe and this is a math problem. And maybe you love need it. to take this offline, but I'm gonna just use it myself. I'm 44 years old. Say I started a whole life insurance policy and I was contributing $5,000 a year to this policy. When did you start it? Uh, Now. 
right okay. now. When oh, I'm 40. This is theoretical. If you did it right now. Okay, got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I did it right now. I guess what would that look like in 10 years? Okay. Is that easy math? That's probably not easy math. Well, it's a couple things. I'm not a fan (laughs) of whole life insurance in general. Oh, oh, sorry. Did I say the wrong thing? No, so here's the thing. There's permanent insurance policies of many different colors. Whole life is one we used to all learn about in the 80s and the 90s. It was like your dad's version of the insurance. It was the Cadillac of the 80s. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's very expensive. It's not that efficient and it doesn't have guarantees. The dividends are not guaranteed. They used to be really good. They used to be 8%. Now they're closer to 4%. And loan okay. rates, whole life policies are like 8%, 5%, not nice and low, like zero net in, net zero loan. So that eats into the value. So I was listening to Susie Orman the other day. She was on CNN and she was like, whole life is the biggest waste of money. And I guess what most people hear when she says that is never do any permanent life insurance. Unfortunately, nothing could mm-hmm. be further from the truth. Whole life is an overpriced kind of policy, but there's policies called universal life or index universal life, which are very different. They're much more efficient. They're kind of like the electric vehicle of the hybrid life insurance world today. They include long-term care riders. They're such a different story than whole life. So first I want to just, if you want to learn how to use cash value life insurance, find someone who's an expert in stuff besides just whole life and stay away from some of the carriers like New York Life, Mass Mutual and Northwestern Mutual. No offense who will only push whole life because that's the only thing that they can push when mm-hmm. it comes to. Now, that being said, if you do a permanent policy, you're 44 and you put in 5K a year on a permanent policy and it has a low initial death benefit, let's say 250K, not too much, not a million dollars of it or anything, because the higher the death mm-hmm. benefit, the higher the cost of insurance. And then more of what you're putting in is going toward just buying permanent insurance instead of part going to pay for the cost of insurance and part towards accumulating that tax-free cash growth that we love, okay? If you do it right, then by year 10, you'll be at about break even for what you've put into it as far as what is in your cash value bucket. Plus, you will have had permanent life insurance this whole time. Plus, you're going to have long-term care baked in. So in the amount of whatever your death benefit is, and that death benefit should continue to grow over time. So whereas it starts at 250, by the time another 10 years go by, it should be close to about 450K of death benefits slash long-term care. Because okay. the longer you have the policy with a well-designed policy, that death benefit will also grow over time, which means not just the tax-free death benefit, but your long-term care grows and the cash value bucket grows. The first 10 years of any kind of cash value life insurance policy, the cash grows the slowest. After year 10, it really accelerates. So that by year 20, in a well-designed cash value life insurance product, your cash bucket, separate completely from the death benefit, right, will be about one and a half times or more what you put into it, okay? Mm. Eventually, you get to where it's 2x, 3x, 4x, 5x what you put into it. Because then it just starts, that snowball effect gets better and better and better. So they're a little bit more, they ramp up. I guess I would say, like most things, insurance is all about thinking ahead. It's about thinking 30 years ahead. And and that's why so many people fail the marshmallow test. Everyone loves the like, I want to go look at a venture deal where they promise me on paper that I'm going to triple my money by year two. And Mm -hmm. I want that. And that sounds wonderful. Let me put my 10K into that. Well, year two comes around and it's, oh, I'm sorry. The founders ran off with the money and moved to Ohio. There's no report. Or I'm sorry, it didn't turn out the way we thought, you know, we need more money or you'll never get your money back at all. It looks great on paper versus something where 
it's not as exciting. It takes a long time, but when you've done it right, you're really sitting pretty later on. Mm -hmm. It's people who can pass the marshmallow test. And annuities are very much the same. So annuities and life insurance are both the same. With annuities, the longer you wait before you annuitize it, the bigger the pool becomes. So they're all Mm -hmm. about, I guess that toe in the game a little bit of like, how much can you discipline yourself so that you know you have more when you're no longer earning income and you really want to have grown that bucket. That's where risk management comes when you're using it for investment pieces. Because the thing with risk management and insurance companies in general to know is they are replete with guarantees. Insurance companies cannot speculate with the money that they hold under Mm -hmm. guard. They have to sit on cash because on a moment's notice, they need to come through with the billion dollars of life insurance death benefit that they're holding. So someone could drop dead any minute and they need within two weeks to deliver a check for a million dollars of tax-free death benefit to that doorstep. There's no Mm -hmm. like, wait a minute, I was in a I was in Guatemala um, carbon capture. I just needed another six months before I can come up with the money. No, they had to sit on that money at all times. And they are mm-hmm. on so much cash because by law, they have to, to come through on these promises, which means that they're more secure than almost, or I would say, arguably any sector in finance. They actually have more stability than the federal government. I hate to say it because they can't take on as much risk as the federal government, which yeah. takes on a lot of debt. Trillions worth of debt. Yes, they do. For sure. Okay, so one more question. So back to you, you mentioned that you could start a index universal life policy, and you could just put in about five to $7,000 a year. You also mentioned you could start it with a lump sum. So what are the pros and cons, I guess, of, of starting of lump summing it, like, you know, giving it a bunch to start off with, and then doing the five to 7k a year, versus just starting out five to 7k a year? Well, actually, it's interesting. If you can get a well-designed policy while you're young and healthy and you just do a lifetime pay design, which is where you put in a small amount, 5 to 7K, 8 to 10K, 10 to 14K, depends on your budget, right? And you get more based on what you put into it. Those are actually some of the best ways to get the biggest ROI. It's not really Hmm. a lump sum is advantageous per se. So that's nice to know because I think it takes the pressure off Some people feel like they have to have so much money to participate in some of the sophisticated solutions that exist out there. And with venture, Mm -hmm. it's often like that. With real estate, it's like that. Sometimes to do a good syndicate, you got to have 50K or you can't participate Mm -hmm. at all, right? And not everyone's sitting on that kind of cash. So it's really nice to know that you're not at a disadvantage if you do one of those like slow and steady annual pay models. The other nice thing about those is you're paying as you go. So if God forbid someone passes away early on and on insurance strategy, they get literally an ROI that's like 100x because yeah. you tax free death benefit in year three and you only paid like what, $21,000 and you got a half a million dollars tax free for your errors. I mean, you can't beat that ROI anywhere. Nothing does that, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes, for example, we have wealthy people, celebrities, athletes who are making a bunch of money and they may not be great about saving it. The business <laughs> managers are like, look, my clients will pay bills, but they will not save. So sometimes what we do is we will short fund, which means we put a large amount in over a schedule of, let's say, five years or 10 years or even just like a one-time lump sum. So we allocate the money. We get it growing. They can't accidentally use it all up on bad decisions. And then they've got their income replacement. Then they've got their death benefit. They've got their legacy planning, their estate tax offset for their errors. All of that stuff is handled. And then it makes complete sense to do it rather than have it on a schedule. Because like I work with entertainers and their income 
fluctuates, right? Some years are really boom, some are really bust. So instead of setting up with a schedule of like always coming up with this, it's like, no, just do it now, forget about it. Those are examples. Mm -hmm. Some too don't love the idea of women, I know, especially I know some doctors that are working heavily now and they are the breadwinners for their family. And they don't love the idea of having to come up with money after they've retired to pay for the policy. They're like, look, I earn half a million dollars a year right now. I would rather just, you know, infuse this policy for 20 years and then be done. So we do a short pay design where it's a 20 pay schedule. They're funding mm -hmm. in full. And then once they're in retirement, it's all paid up. If you've got the liquidity, what that does is it grows your death benefit faster, which also grows your long-term care faster. And it takes pressure off in retirement age. We can always look at flexibility when it comes to how to design around each particular client's preferences. But there's not really a disadvantage in doing one mm -hmm. of those like more slow and steady infusions. So that's mm -hmm. nice. That's what's really nice about it. So one more question is, I've heard people get multiple policies, like multiple like this, or they get them on their kids. Why would people do multiple policies? And why would you get them for your children when they're really young? I see people with multiple policies often if they're with Northwestern Mutual or Mass Mutual or New York Life. And I don't understand why. I think the more you have separate policies, the more the cost of insurance increases and you're really, I guess, mm -hmm. create additional commission for the producer who placed the policies. But I think it's inefficient. I think if you're going to have a cash value life insurance policy, better to have one really good one than five. I've seen seven per person of these little itty bitty ones that grow no cash value because it's too diffused. And I don't understand mm -hmm. what happens, but I'm not a Northwestern Mutual agent, so I wouldn't understand exactly. And I would never want to be in a Northwestern Mutual agent for this reason. I like high value designs that deliver more to the recipient than I get out of it. Because I'm a big mentality like of a go-giver. I like things to give to the world and then I receive as a result of what I gave as opposed to be trying to take. And I don't approach insurance as that. So I don't completely understand why that happens. I do see it. I think it's really unfortunate. Every time I see it, they come to me for a second opinion. And if they're still healthy enough and insurable enough, we're easily able to take all those policies, consolidate them, roll them over into one better policy, mm -hmm. blow the cash value through the roof and improve the whole situation. So it's kind of like there must be some ulterior motive or some rationale that I don't understand during the sales process coming from some of those carriers and vendors. Now, there is a thing in term insurance called layering. That's a different story. Sometimes you can layer term insurance. I have a case right now. He's a doctor. He wants 4 million overall, but his kids are already like 10 and up. So he's thinking of doing 3 million of 20 year and 1 million of 30 year. That gives mm -hmm. him a total of 4 million for the next 10 years. And then the cost for that 3 million falls off because by then his kids are arguably self-sufficient and he still has 1 million that'll see those kids over through to like age 30, which is a nice to have. And it's more efficient from a cost standpoint than getting four million of 30 year term. And so sometimes mm. layer term strategies, there can be made a case for that because it saves a little money. It's a little extra work, but ultimately there's a clear reason for doing that versus layering permanent policies does not make much sense to me at all. Okay. But putting them on your kids is great. You can set up a little nest egg for your kids and put in 2,500 a year in a nice cash value IUL for your kids. Fund it for 20 years. And by the time they graduate, you're giving them a policy that they'll have a million dollars of cash growth in it, you know, and teach them how to steward the money wisely and make them their own bank and use it to fund their first business idea or use it to pay for college. 
Sure. That totally makes sense to put it on your kids as long as you store the wealth properly. Awesome. Well, this has been so fantastic. It's been very helpful for me personally, and it will be super helpful for the listener as well. So tell me, Jennifer, just to end off, what are you doing to leave a legacy or live a legacy? Okay. I love this question. I'm really attempting to make sure my children understand the value of money and that understand that good people should have money. My daughter got a fortune cookie once. She was seven. And it said, you'll be very rich one day. She said, no, I want to be a good person. And I realized she she somehow caught the original family disease that my family used to have, which was you were either rich or a good person. I'm like, no, 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 no. You could be both. I was like, no, no, no. Money is a magnifier. If you're good, it multiplies the good you can do. If you're nasty, it can multiply your nasty. But don't you think more good people should be rich? That way more good happens on the planet. And that came out of my mouth because I had a child and suddenly I could frame something I never myself even thought. And I'm dedicated to their hopefully being well provided for, God willing, and having a value around money. So they're stewards, they're contributors to the world with how they show up and what they give to the planet. That's our little microcosm trying to create that bubble of like, we're here to build the world, to to try to do good in the world, right? Not just sucking up air. And I've also created a, a, a nonprofit called WOW. It stands for Women of Wealth. And it's a, an organization dedicated to helping move women through financial literacy, fluency, and mastery. Meaning at every level, we increase our financial IQ. The better we get with money, the more we can do impact and charitable giving and impact investing. And I do believe that money in the hands of women will certainly improve overall the decisions that get made by corporations governments and hopefully create more peace on the planet. I mean, that's my fervent wish and I'm doing everything I possibly can to do that with my lifetime. That's my goal. Oh, I love it. And thank you for being a leader in this space too. And for like being a trailblazer. I, like I said, I love meeting other women who are doing this. So Jennifer, if people wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way to do so? Oh, sure. They can reach me anytime via email at jennifer at teamqis.com. And that's Jennifer with two N's and it's team like sports team, T-E-A-M as in Mary, and then qis.com. You can go to our website, which is www.quantuminsuranceservices.com as well and learn about you know where we specialize and fill out an inquiry form if you just want to learn more. You can check out womenofwealth.com if you want to learn about that mission as well. That's www.womxnofwealth.com. Find me on LinkedIn too, Jennifer Burnham Grubbs. Lots of different ways you can connect. I would say always you can think of me as your friendly insurance nerd. I am more than happy to help demystify anything you ever hear about insurance. So at the very least, you can get second opinions and informed advice. Excellent. Thank you so much. And to our listener, thank you for joining us today. Please share this episode with someone you know and love. After all, we need to share the education to share the wealth. Bye for now. Thanks so much for joining me on the Quiet Wealth Podcast. If you want more, head on over to camillajeffs.com forward slash podcast to get the show notes and dive into other episodes. While you're there, be sure to grab the free guide to building wealth. And if you know a friend who is struggling with money, please send this episode to them. Let's share the wealth in as many ways as we can. Until next time, much success.